0: of class. I hope you enjoyed our first episode on Mark Fisher's *Ghosts of My Life and that you've enjoyed reading K-Punk, the text we will be discussing this week. K-Punk was the name of Fisher's of Mark Fisher's blog, which he ran from 2004 to 2016. In a 2010 interview, Fisher explained why he started the blog. I started blogging as a way of getting back into writing after the traumatic experience of doing a PhD. PhD work bullies one into the idea that you can't say anything about any subject until you've read every possible authority on it. But blogging seemed a more informal space, without that kind of pressure. Blogging was a way of tricking myself back into doing serious writing. I was able to con myself thinking, it doesn't matter, it's only a blog post, it's not an academic paper. But now I take the blog rather more seriously than writing academic papers. After the trauma of doing his PhD, while working as an F.E., Further Education Teacher, Fisher began his blog. Unlike now, when Fisher began his blog, blogging was still in its early days. By creating a blog, Fisher was able to make a space between between academia and the pop culture world of television, film, and music. Like much of his work then, his blog work, his creation of k-punk, and his regular work on it created a space between, inside the internet world, but unaffiliated, with its references to philosophy, theory, music, television, film, a form of collage. In other words, Bischer's k-punk was something new, and also, due to its collage-like structure, available to new possibilities. In his description of Marquis Smith's work with The Fall in K-Punk, Fisher describes a quite similar structure. He writes, The fall's sound and cover was gnarled, collaged, cut up, deliberately incomplete. And again, in part two of Fisher's essay on The Fall, Memorex for the Kraken, In the fall's pulp modernism. Fisher describes Smith's writing similarly. He writes, the tracks are palimpsests badly recorded in a deliberate refusal of the coffee table aesthetic Smith derides on the cryptic sleeve notes. The process of recording is not airbrushed out but foregrounded surface hiss and illegible cassette noise brandish like improvised stitching on some Hammer, Frankenstein, mod- monster. Such structures create the fabric from which something entirely new might arise. In capitalist realism, Fisher writes the following The tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism. From a situation in which, not- in which nothing can happen, suddenly anything is possible again. Fisher's insistence on forms outside the establishment with their connection to punk, punk here meaning punk in its original embodiment, punk as resistance in its embodiment of the negative, is itself already an attempt at locating possibility, at refusing commodification. Punk, remember, in its original incarnation was pure negativity. As we discussed in our first episode, all of this is in line with Fisher's writing, His writing is amalgamation of theoretical ideas presented through pop culture. Such writing resists the distance of both the academic and the literary worlds, writing instead from a lived, embodied voice and experience. Though I would not call this podcast, or any podcast, a peripheral project, there are a There are a proliferation of podcasts out there, podcasts made by major publications, for example, and organizations. The podcast does still have within it the possibility of autonomy, like the blog, perhaps, Let Us Hope. A podcast, this podcast is free and available to anyone with access to Wi-Fi. In today's podcast, we will be discussing Mark Fisher's blog, trend book publication K-Punk, and we will be looking specifically at his writings on the fall and mental illness. K-Punk, or rather perhaps the pieces in K-Punk, were important to me and my class consciousness for the same reasons I mentioned in the first podcast. Reading Fisher's pieces about mental illness were especially meaningful to me. Struggling, as I have since high school, or I should say junior high, with depression and an eating disorder. I had absorbed the idea that these were my fault, that they were mine. I have spent thousands of dollars and endless amounts of hours in various types of therapy working hard at ridding myself of these symptoms to no avail. When I read Fisher's writings, Good for Nothing and Mental Illness is a Political Issue, I experienced a radical change. I saw that my... Depression and eating disorders were directly connected to my place in society. Of course, of course, I didn't want to eat. Once I realized this truth, that mental illness is directly connected to society, to class, I could move my attention from me, what was quote-unquote wrong with me, and instead turn my focus back to where it belonged, society and capitalism in particular. These two articles specifically constituted a kind of event for me. After reading the pieces, I was not the same. My thinking changed, and the world was no longer the same. Marky Smith, as Fisher points out in his essays on the fall and k-punk, Mamerex for the Kraken, the Fall's Pulp Modernism, created work that defied category. In the music, the lyrics, and the cover art, as well as the fall's resistance to listing the song lyrics in the album's liner notes, the fall continually break apart, then reassemble, resisting any fixed identity, while at the same time resisting being misunderstood as spokesman for any one group, in particular being seen as being a spokesman for the working class. Describing the album's grotesque after the Gram, slates, and hex induction hour, Fisher writes the following. In this ambition, its linguistic inventiveness, and its formal innovation, this triptych bears comparison with the great works of 20th century high literary modernism, Joyce, Elliot, Lewis. The Fall extend and performatively critique that mode of high modernism by reversing the impression impersonation of working-class accent, dialect, and diction that, for example, Eliot performed in The Wasteland. Smith's strategy involved aggressively retaining accent while using, in the domain of a supposedly popular entertainment form, highly arcane literary practices. In doing so, he laid waste the notion that intelligence, literary sophistication, and artistic experimentalism are the exclusive preserve of the privileged and the formally educated. But Smith knew that aping master class moves presented all sorts of other dangers. It should never be a matter of proving to the masters that the white crap could be civilized. That's That's a quote. And a bit later, Fisher writes, the temptation for Smith was always to fit into the easy Role of working class spokesman speaking from an assigned place in a given social world. Smith played with that role, quote, the white crap that talks back, unquote, quote, prol art threat, unquote, and quote, hip priest, unquote. Whilst refusing to actually play it, he knew that representation was a trap. Social realism was the enemy because it supposedly merely represent, because in supposedly merely representing the social order, it actually constituted it. What Fisher is describing here is similar to Clarice Lispector's later work, which we'll discuss in, an, in a later episode. Both Smith and Lispector utilize paratexts. As we will discuss in the later episode, one effect of the paratext is its simulation of the now. Rather than narrating a story in a seamless stream, the paratext Text, created as it is, with multiple layers of fragmentary text, is similar to the way we actually experience the world. As a result, such works are inherently nearer to the original lived experience, drawing the reader or the listener in to the actual experience being relayed. Like Walter Benjamin's Textum, what he describes as work that incorporates both what is remembered and the experiential texture of what is not, The reader-listener finds herself experiencing the event being relayed, rather than merely reading about it, being trapped on the outside of the experience. In K-Punk, Fisher writes the following, With the fall of this period, what Gerard Genet calls paratexts, those liminal conventions such as introductions, prefaces, and blurbs, which mediate between the text and the reader, assume special significance. Smith's paratexts were clues that posed as many puzzles as they solved. His notes and press releases were no more intelligible than the songs they were nominally supposed to explain. All paratexts occupy an ambivalent position, neither inside nor outside the text. Smith uses them to ensure that no definite boundary could be placed around the songs, rather than being contained and defined by its sleeve Hex hemorrhages through the cover. What Fisher describes here of the Fall's use of paratext is especially fascinating because what he is describing is not merely the use of paratext within one text, but rather the use of this construction throughout the lyrics, the music, the liner notes, cover album interviews, and so on, as Fisher writes. It was clear that the songs weren't complete in themselves, but part of a large fictional system to which listeners were only ever granted partial access. I used to write a lot of prose on and off, Smith would say later. When we were doing Hex, I was doing stories all the time, and the songs were like bits left over. Smith, Smith's refusal to provide lyrics or to explain his songs was in part an attempt to ensure that they remained writerly. Roland Barthes opposes such texts which demand the reader, demand the active participation of the reader to readerly texts which reduce the reader to the passive role of consumer of already existing totalities. All right, so if you've not listened to The Fall or you've listened to The Fall but not listened close to the song lyrics, I'm going to read you some some lyrics from the NWRA, The North Will Rise Again, and I think most of what I've been discussing, what we've been talking about, will make a little more sense. So this is just um, the, the first portion. I'm going to read it, and I'm not going to sing it. When it happened, we walked through all the estates, from Manchester Wright to Newcastle, and Darlington helped a large man on his own chase off some kids who were chucking bricks and stuff through his flat window. She had a way with people like that. He cussed us and we moved on. Junior Choice played one morning. The, the song was English Scheme. The song was English Scheme. Mine, they changed it and, and did a grand piano and turned it into a love song. How they did it, I don't know. DJs had worsened since the rising, elaborating on nothing and praising the track with words they could hardly pronounce in telephone voices. I was mad and laughed at the same time. The West German government had brought over large yellow trains on Teesside docks. In Edinburgh, I stayed on my own a few days, wandering about in the pissing rain before the Queen Mother hit town. I'm Joe Total, the yet unborn son. The North will rise again. The North will rise again, not in 10,000 years. So that's that's the end of what I'm reading you all. Now the song goes on for quite a while still. After the vignettes that I just read, Smith says shift, and introduces, and introduces an entirely different narrative. So, in effect, the song, poem, short story, is actually split in two, and each of the two are, as I'm sure you already noticed, it itself collaged themselves collaged of a series of smaller bits. Because there is no voiceover, but instead what appears to be scraps of a life lived. Rather than being kept outside the frame of the experience of the song, we're instead right in the middle of it. It's as if we are sitting with Smith as he is telling us all this as it is happening. In addition, such multi-layered texts resist being fixed to one identity Here with Smith, he resists being considered a spokesperson for the working class, but also, as Fisher notes, he also resists stereotypes of the working class, while at the same time resisting assimilation. He insists on existing someplace in between. The concept of the space between is one I have been thinking about for the past years. For a while, I was interested specifically in the subject of the anorexic how her not eating, or as Lacan insists, the anorexic does not not eat, she eats the nothing. I presented a paper on the anorexic and capitalism a few years ago arguing that the anorexic's refusal is a refusal of capitalism and that in her eating nothing, she was making, in the space between the anorexic and the world, A space where the lack could reside, a space that served as a placeholder for something entirely new, something capitalism is not able to provide. The space between also serves as a space between the anorexic and the world, a kind of threshold to keep the world at bay. The space between is also the space between two opposing ideas, and as a result, it is within this space between that something new might arise. So, Smith's insistence on existing within the space between is a resistance to capitalism, to assimilating to capitalism, and an insistence on preserving the space between which serves as a placeholder for the possibility of something new. Throughout Fisher's essays on the fall in K-Punk, he continuously refers to the possibility of something entirely new. In part one, he writes that the event, an experience that changes one's world and one's self, one's thinking. Here he uses this term to describe his first experience of hearing the fall, and I'm going to read this longer quote. Back then the fall did something to me, but what and how? Let's call it an event, and at the same time note that all events have a dimension of the uncanny. If something is too alien, it will fail to register. If it is too easily recognized, too easily cognizable, it will never be more than a reiteration of the already known. When the fall pummeled their way into my nervous system circa 1983, it was as if a world that was familiar, in which I had thought too familiar, too quotidian to feature in a rock, had returned expression and expressionistically transfigured, permanently altered. Here in his writing on the fall and the event, Fisher writes two of the uncanny, a topic he examines more closely in his book of 2016, The Weird and the Eerie. Here, in his analysis of the fall, of his description of his encounter with the band, he uses the term uncanny to describe what he had perceived before as quotidian as, he writes, a world that was familiar, and which I thought too familiar, too quotidian to feature in rock. Return transfigured, permanently altered. This ability to transfer to transform the everyday to the weird is described, of course, by Freud as the uncanny. In his essay, The Uncanny, Freud describes it as, quote, that class of the frightening which leads back to what is known of old and long familiar. Furthermore, he writes, what is uncanny is frightening precisely because it is not known and familiar. Naturally, not everything that is new and unfamiliar is frightening. However, the relation is not capable of inversion. We can only say that what is novel can easily become frightening and uncanny. Some new things are frightening, but not by any means all. Something has to be added to what is novel and unfamiliar in order to make it uncanny. So here we returned back to the added elements of Smith's work, the palimpsest quality of the music, the lyrics, the artwork, and the persona. By adding more elements, elements that accrue, each element adding one more complication or diversion, the work becomes strange. You don't have to be strange to be strange as Smith sings in Totally Wired. And just to add one more point, this collaging we are discussing is not a kind of word salad, random pasting together. If this were the case, the work would be without any meaning. Rather, the element of adding to is a constant, almost compulsive practice in dialectics of contradiction and complications and always precise, the particular. When Smith writes sings, you don't have to be strange to be strange, he is, of course, referring to the band, to himself. And this idea of not having to be strange to be strange, this double negation that erases itself, suggests the obvious. One does not need to try to be strange. By not trying to conform, by not trying at all, by resisting assimilation to capitalism and the middle class ideals and aesthetics, By being oneself without spin or gloss, one will inherently be strange. Not surprisingly, in the line previous to this line in the song Smith writes, sings, you don't have to be an American brand. A more specific sentiment that says exactly the same thing or essentially the same thing. You don't have to commodify yourself, which is to say you don't have to make yourself into a product. You can instead... Just simply be yourself. All right, so it is time for a short break. We'll be playing The Falls, the NWRA in its entirety. So grab a beer or Coke and some candy, a sandwich, or see what's on the news. And I'll see you all on the other side. Be discussing Fisher's essays on mental illness from K Punk. Specifically, we'll be looking at his essays Why Mental Health is a Political Issue, The Privatization of Stress, and Good for Nothing. But I was thinking during the break about um, listening to the song, of course, and listening to the different layers that. uh, that exist in the song. And so I was thinking again about what I was saying before the break about uh, Cluesa Spectre and um, the fall, and I just wanted to add a couple thoughts. Um, so when Fisher argues for a form of composition that resists a slick, clean aesthetic ubiquitous to the music industry, music world um, an insistence on professionalism, on the aesthetic of the sellable object. He could also be speaking of Mark Linkus, uh, who I write about in The Melancholy of Class, the book um, of Sparkle Horse, or the late work of Clarice Spector, who I mentioned earlier. Both of these artists insist on this type of layering of the constructing of a work of a palimpsest, of including the everyday quotidian, and then erasing the static, and not erasing the static or hiss that occurs during the making of the thing. Indeed, Linkus describes this aesthetic in an interview as making a pop song and then smearing it over with crackle and noise. And you can kind of hear that in this song we just heard where there are these um, layers of lyrics and sounds and then on top of that more sounds are um, sort of smeared over or crackled over. And in this aesthetic there's an aesthetic of holes, of ruptures and gaps, and such work also reflects the fabric of our lived existence, and I mentioned this earlier, which is always in the now, right? Our existence as we exist in the moment, right? It's right now, um, which is always, um, uh, the moment is always um, rupturing and interrupting, and always it's in a state of incompletion right? as it's happening. So you can see that, um. That the song, that the different songs by the fall, and then Lispector's later work and Linkus, and then other artists. will be talking about um, this creation of a kind of um, fabric almost that is um, deeply textured, right, with extra added on over and over. And this again reminds me of um, uh, Walter Benjamin when he's writing about Proust and how Proust would receive his galleys and when rather than. Um, making the edits that were suggested, he would just add more and more into the margins, this constructing that never ends, right, this um, creation of this um, multi-layered textile. So I just wanted to add that in before we start moving on to um, Fisher's essays on mental illness. Um, so, as I've written and explained elsewhere, Mark Fisher's writing on mental illness and, in particular, his essay, Good for Nothing and why mental health is a political issue were extraordinarily important for me in my understanding of mental illness, my own mental illness, mental illnesses, and um, the mental illnesses of those I love and care about. Specifically, the way Fisher connects mental illness with society and, more specifically, with the cruelties of capitalism, This has been incredibly formative for me. The way contemporary capitalism normalizes mental illness, as if being in a constant state of anxiety and panic, self-loathing and depression, is normal. And yet, um, uh, the constant idea that they're... that, that something has to be done with these symptoms, so, right? So as if we, sh- the sense that there's no point to anything, that, um, and at the same time, the sense of constant anxiety and terror, um, as if that's normal, and yet at the same time, um, there's a sense that it's not normal, that we have to behave in a certain kind of distant manner, right, which is um, this uh, sort of lived experience or aesthetic of the middle class that we're meant to ape, right? Um, always cool, always distance. Um, uh, so, this idea that we ought to arrive at our shitty jobs ready for small talk and smiles and everything is fine, um, hence the pharmaceutical industry with its endless ads on the television and in the pages of magazines and in my city, um, in the subways, right, billboards everywhere. Um, Right? Who in the United States is not on one form or another of a mood-quelling medication? Not anyone, right? Um, but of course, none of this is normal. These symptoms are the direct result of our culture. If we are to take Freud and Lacan seriously, which I do, a symptom exists as a means to tell us something. Symptoms are the manifestation of repression, of repressed information we are unable to digest. An eating disorder, for instance, is a placeholder for, for some terrible truth and/or trauma that we are not able to fathom. Though an eating disorder, eating disorders are deadly, anorexia, for example, results in more deaths than any other mental illness. It is still easier to deal with an eating disorder than the terrible truth or trauma that the eating disorder is masking, right? The, the trauma or the awful truth that the eating disorder is a symptom of. and But it's only by examining the origin of the symptom that we have any chance at all of getting rid of it. So our symptoms are, in a sense, our psyche is trying to tell us something. What anorexia is telling me, is trying to tell me, is that I don't want what capitalism is offering me. I want something else. And so this constant uh, appetite that I have, this constant appetite for something and yet, this um, this this uh, uh, never-ending um, voice in my head that says that I can't eat. This is um, kind of a manifestation of this other terrible truth, which is that I don't want what my society is giving me. I want something else. And so, this uh, this space between that I'm motioning toward, right? This appetite for something, and yet I can't eat it, is a uh, metaphor for this. Um, from my not wanting what capitalism is giving me and wanting something different but then at the same time the eating disorder right is kind of band-aid it's a kind of um, a diversion a distraction from this terrible truth because if I look at that truth that I don't want what capitalism is giving me where does that lead me right it's, it's a very, it's an ex, a existential uh, issue right it's it's larger than I am and an eating disorder though it it um, can kill me, um, it's still more manageable, right? It's something that um, is in a way smaller, if that makes any sense. Um, okay, so what What then do I do? What then do we do? And I would suggest we read Mark Fis- Fisher, of course. His term capitalist realism refers to this very idea, that, um, that all of us or most of us have absorbed, even without knowing it, this idea that capitalism uh, will never come to an end and that there is no other option other than capitalism. Fisher writes uh, the following. Capitalist realism is... Fisher writes, the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. End of quote. Fisher's description of the fall of the structure of Smith's life and work as one example provide an opportunity to see how exits from capitalism perhaps only momentarily are indeed possible, or perhaps such ruptures and terrors might provide entryways into actual exits as he writes and as i read during the first half of the podcast in capitalist realism and here's the quote the tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of a reaction which has marked the horizons of possibility under capitalist realism from a situation in which nothing can happen suddenly anything is possible again The symptom, then, might be understood as an event, a calamitous encounter that restructures one's life and thinking, an encounter that, though catastrophic, if tended to, by which I mean when we pay attention to our symptoms, rather than quickly trying to erase it with medicine, for instance, we have the opportunity to enter the chaos of the catastrophe and explore and examine it and learn what it is trying to tell us. An eating disorder, for instance, marks a new horizon, a limitation, placing the sufferer in an endless series of repetitions, a series, in this case, of rituals and beliefs that simulate the original thought or trauma. Then one can spend an entire life trapped in such a circuitous loop of repetitive rituals and beliefs, becoming more and more entrenched in it. Or, instead, we could take a look at the meaning encoded in the symptom. In Mark Fisher's article, Good for Nothing, Fisher writes in a direct conversational manner, describing his own experience with a mental illness, in this case, depression, and its correlation with social class. This is, in my mind, one of the most vulnerable writings of Fisher's, and perhaps that is why it is also one of, in my opinion, his most powerful pieces. In the first paragraph, this is what he writes. I have suffered from depression intermittently since I was a teenager. Some of these episodes have been highly debilitating, resulting in self-harm, withdrawal, where I would spend months on end in my own room, only venturing out to sign on or to buy the minimal amounts of food I was consuming. And time spent on psychiatric wards, I wouldn't say I recovered from the condition, but I'm pleased to say that both the incidences and the severity of depressive episodes have greatly lessened in recent years. Partly that is a consequence of changes in my life situation, but it is also to do with coming to a different understanding of my depression and what caused it. I offer up my own experiences of mental distress not because I think there's anything special or unique about them, but in support of the claim that many forms of depression are best understood and best combated through frames that are impersonal and political rather than individual and, quote, psychological, unquote. In this article, Fisher describes his own experience with depression and connects it directly with being a member of the working class. In particular, he describes how, despite the fact of his attending college, then earning a Ph.D., he struggled with self-loathing the sense that he was good for nothing. Capitalism and neoliberalism tell us we will feel better the more we achieve. And yet what Fisher describes contradicts this. Indeed, regardless of our achievements, this sense of worthlessness, the result of having worthlessness interpolated onto us by the ruling class, by teachers, classmates, colleagues, and so on, does not subside. Indeed, it may even be the case that the more we achieve, which is to say the further we move into the world of the middle class, the louder this internal voice becomes. This has certainly been my experience teaching, giving talks, even working on this podcast, everything I do in the world fills me with an existential terror, the very real sense that I am on the brink of annihilation, and nothing buffers this. In that same article, Fisher writes the following, for those who from birth are taught to think of themselves as lesser, the acquisition of qualifications or wealth will seldom be sufficient to erase, either in their own minds or in the minds of others, the primordial sense of worthlessness that marks them so early in life. Someone who moves out of the social sphere they are supposed to occupy is always in danger of being overcome by feelings of vertigo, panic, and horror. In the piece Fisher cites the work of David Smell, a therapist Whose book, The Origins of Unhappiness, Fisher was directed to by one of his readers. Smells writing, writes, Smells Writing, writes of what he calls magical voluntarism, what Fisher describes as the belief that it is within every individual's power to make themselves whatever they want to be. This belief system is so deeply embedded in our culture, we take it for granted. And yet we know also from our own experience and often through the experience of our parents, relatives, and close friends, that this is very much not the case. My father, for instance, worked his entire life, beginning at 15, though technically because he worked in the fields. He began working as a small child. He worked his entire life, and yet was not able to buy a home, accrue a savings, or retirement. I have also worked my entire life, beginning at 15, in high school, and yet have been unable to to procure full-time employment. I have no retirement, I owe $600,000 in student loans. Society says implicitly, my failures are my own fault. If I just worked harder, and these voices, if I just worked harder then dot, 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 and and these voices are uh, internalized. As a result, I find myself internally split between this one internalized voice that tells me I am responsible for my own failures, and then and then for my symptoms, my mental illnesses, and another voice that insists it isn't true. We have worked, we do work as much, or as often is the case, more than the middle class, and yet have remained unable to move out of poverty, precarity. And even if we do, as Fisher writes, we are unable to escape the internal voice that tells us we are worthless and good for nothing. In the last paragraph of the essay, Fisher writes the following, Collective depression is the result of the working class's project of resubordination. For some time now, we have increasingly accepted the idea that we are not the kind of people who can act. This isn't a failure of will any more than an individual depressed person can snap themselves out of it by pulling their socks up. The rebuilding of class consciousness is a formidable task, indeed one that cannot be achieved by calling upon ready-made so- solutions, but in spite of what our collective depression tells us, it can be done. Inventing new forms of political involvement, receiving, uh, rel- reliving institutions that have become decadent converting privatized disaffection into politicized anger. All of this can happen and when it does, who knows what is possible. Here at the conclusion of Fisher's essay, he makes a call out to us, the working class and the working poor, the depressed, to resist capitalism and neoliberalism's ideology of self-help and instead come together to come up with something entirely new. In this call, in this call, is the revolutionary stance that, contrary to capitalism's belief that the working class and poor, the depressed, are less than nothing, we're in fact quite powerful, and especially when we recognize that we are a majority. Fisher makes a similar call at the end of his essay, also included in Kate Punk, Disidentity Politics, when he writes, also at the end of that essay, the following... The depressive totally dislocated from the world is in a better position to undergo subjective destitution than someone who thinks that there is some home within the current order that can still be preserved and defended. Whether on a psychiatric ward or prescription drugged into zombie oblivion in their own domestic environment, the millions who have suffered massive mental damage under capitalism, the decommissioned Fordist robots, now on incapacity benefit, as well as the reserve army of the unemployed who have never worked, might well turn out to be the next revolutionary class. They, we, really have nothing to lose. I love especially this excerpt because in it, Fisher makes clear the connection between the marginalization of the working class and poor, the experience, and how this marginalization, and as a result of this experience of marginalization, the working class, poor, reserve army, etc., are immune to any delusion that capitalism can provide for us, anything that we want. We know from our own experience that there is no home within the current order that can be preserved and defended. And as a result, we are perfectly suited to be the next revolutionary class Indeed, our poverty, our suffering that results from the violence of capitalism, the way our days, our lives are turned into an endless series of jobs, of work, so that we are unable to locate time to rest properly, let alone think. And if we are unable to work because we're unable to locate work or due to a disability or mental illness, then we too are relegated to a life of And often, in both these cases, we are not able to to receive proper medical care, either no medical care at all, or if we are lucky to have insurance, it is often rudimentary with doctors who treat us with disrespect, who condescend to us, don't respond to our repeated telephone calls for help, refuse to write us referrals for specialists, and so on. All of these are symptoms of capitalism, and the symptoms can be temporarily alleviated through attempts at self-medication. So if I can't get work, if I'm living in precarity or poverty, if I have an illness, I can drink myself into another state. I can spend money. I can binge or starve or run 20 miles. I can do these things, but they don't do anything to this, they don't do anything to the actual, um, my actual lived experience, and they do nothing to alleviate the truth underneath um, my symptoms. Um, Okay, what do I wanna say? We've come now to the end of our second podcast, and though I had hoped to spend more time discussing Mark Fisher's essays on mental illness, I think the various diversions and forays were also fruitful. Thank you for joining me on the Melancholy of Class, a Manifesto for the Working Class podcast. This podcast is meant to be a community, and though we are not meeting in person, these podcasts do feel communal to me. But to help facilitate the sense of community, I encourage you to send me your questions or comments or even just send a note introducing yourself. And I will do my very best to respond. You can send any questions, comments, or hellos to the following email, The Melancholy of at gmail.com. So it's the Melancholy of Class, one long series of letters at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining me on another episode of the Melancholy of Class. Our next episode number three, we will be discussing Walter Benjamin's essay on some motifs in Baudelaire. In the meantime, take very good care and I'll see you in 2 weeks and enjoy our closing music, ballad of the band by felt.
1: Yes, I feel like and there's a place for abstracts And there's a place for noise And there's a place for any kind of success of on that and tell me why we spoil It's all my vote Yes I'm too late That's right.